Welcome everyone to this week's episode of Shelf Healing, UCL's Bibliotherapy Podcast. This week I will not be your host, but our lovely Vice Dean of Wellbeing, Professor Samantha Rayner, will be talking with Henry Elliott of Penguin, all about his new book. I won't tell you any more. You'll have to listen to the rest of the episode with Sam and Henry to find out. Welcome everybody to this episode of Shelf Healing. My name is Samantha Rayner. I am Vice Dean of Wellbeing for the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at UCL and I'm thrilled to be able to introduce you to Henry Elliott, um, who is the creative editor of Penguin Classics for today's episode. Welcome, Hi. Henry. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, Henry, are you all right for me to tell um, the listeners a bit about you or do you want to just tell them a bit about your past and uh, how you got (laughs) to be creative editor of Penguin Classic? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm very happy to talk about that. Um, So um, I've worked at Penguin for about five years now. And yes, I've got this slightly unusual role title, which is creative editor, which to be honest with you, we we basically made that up when I started the job. Um, and what it really, what it means is that I I was an author with Penguin before I worked there. And they, they've brought me in as a sort of in-house uh, sort of enthusiast reader uh, and creative to really be a kind of kid in a sweet shop surrounded by Penguin classics um, and finding ways to help people engage with them because I think one of the you know one of the issues that we talked about very early on in this role is that there are so many penguin classics and penguin modern classics it it can be quite overwhelming and so um, part of my job is to sort of help people navigate that list and find the books they really want to read. That sounds like an amazing job role. So I'm going to ask you a few questions, if that's okay. And one of the things I wanted to start by asking about, because this this podcast is all about shelf healing and the way that, you know, reading can help with our well-being. And I spotted on your sort of official bio on your agent's webpage that before you did this job, you ran literary tours to places like Canterbury, for example, with the Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and one for the National Trust inspired by William Morris. And even, and this really sort of made me perk up as a kind of Arthurian in my other research interests, you did one on um, Mallory's Mort Darthur. Yes, a little quest for the Holy Grail. So could you talk to us a little, yeah, talk to us a little bit about that and why you think people like to travel to places associated with Great. You know what? What does that do for their kind of well-being? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is. Yeah. This is a question I think about quite a lot because, in one way or another, quite a lot of the projects I've worked on over the years have involved situating literature in landscape or in place. And in fact, just at the moment, I, I present a, the the Penguin Classics podcast, which has that very format. We, in each episode, we travel to a specific location to talk about a book. Yeah, I think it's um I think there are, there are several reasons why I find it fascinating and and why it really works for me. I suppose the thing I what I really love is it's sort of walking through a landscape while discussing a book or reading from a book. And I think that's I think that's partly because there is a, a kind of comparison you can draw between reading and walking. You know, in similar ways you have to you have to put in time to make both of those things happen. You know, you have to put in time to get through the space, whether it's on a walk or passing the pages of a book. And in a similar way, you know, if you repeat a walk at a different season of the year or you read a book at a different time of your life, you'll notice different details or things will strike you differently along the way. And I think in another sense, you know, some walks are very 
pleasant, sunny walks in the park. <laughs> Some walks are really quite grueling and tough. And I think, you know, you, you know, you go for different styles of walk at different times. And, you know, you might, I don't know, if you want a sunny walk in the park, you might settle down to an old PG Woodhouse, for instance. Or, you know, a couple of years ago, I struggled through um, Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, which is honestly the most grueling reading experience. And I remember at the time comparing it to 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 climbing a mountain because it really felt like it needed sort of endurance and you know a lot of willpower to keep going and a kind of uh, and it was and it was really hard but then afterwards i thought that was quite a good comparison because i don't feel like i've lived on that mountain i don't feel like i know it in every type of weather or i don't know every face of the mountain but i've been up one path and come down and i've got the scope of it now and i've sort of seen the view from the top and if ever i um do try and tackle it again. I'll, I'll I'll get a different facet of the mountain. So I think that I think you know there's a sort of natural uh, comparison to be drawn there. And then I also think that um, the pace of you know by sort of taking the time to visit a location and 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 you know the pace of walking is a great way to experience a book. You mentioned uh, this recreation of the Canterbury Tales that I organised. So I got a group of about twenty. Uh, uh, modern day pilgrims together, and we walked from Southwark to Canterbury and told all the all of Chaucer's tales along the way, and and um, as far as possible stuck to the medieval pilgrimage route. And actually, it was really, you know, that that could be quite a sprawling, intimidating text, and it made it so accessible and um, approachable. You know, taking one tale at a time and and, and giving it space and time around it. And, it, and also that time of walking in between each tale meant that it could really sort of settle with us and we could discuss it and think about it and and then be ready for the next one when it came along. So, yeah, but I feel like there's lots of reasons why I sort of like to take literature into the landscape. I, I do agree. I think that this connection between outside and the in the whatever's happening internally when we read things, the imaginative side of things, that mm. connection can be extremely powerful. I do remember when I just finished my A levels, a group of friends, we we got in my little mini and went down to Dorset and we went to Thomas Hardy's cottage. And it was right, a beautiful yes. summer's. I just remember it being very idyllic and very Test of the Durbervilles because it was, you know, beautiful <laughs> sunshine. And we'd all done Test of the Durbervilles for our A level English and we sat in the garden and wow. Unfortunately, wow. we'd already taken our exam, so it was a bit late to have that kind <laughs> of, oh, wow, this is what, you know, this is what he was talking about. This is the landscape. Yes, I totally agree. I remember once being a bit sort of feeling a bit sad because Ian Sinclair, who's one of my sort of heroes and is a great walker and, and writer, he, I remember reading a piece by him where he said he was a bit suspicious of literary pilgrimages. Like, I didn't quite understand why, but for me, I think it it really brings an author and a work to life to to visit yes. the place. It, yes. you know, I particularly like visiting the the rooms where a book was actually written. You know, I've I recently was standing in the study at Shandy Hall in Yorkshire where Lawrence Stern wrote Tristram Shandy, and that book, especially because he keeps breaking out of a narrative to describe like breaking his pen or throwing his wig in the air or whatever. But you could just you know to be in that airspace to share the same you know, the same little plot of the planet with with that author of a book I love, you know, it, there was some, there's a real sort of shiver of excitement there. And you're right, you know, s- someone like Hardy, who's such a, a writer of landscape, to to sort of see those, let's see that topography and see how it maps onto the 
books is you know that's that's so exciting I think yeah and it's something it's a memory as well it's something that I don't know has stayed with all mm. of us that were, mm. you know went and it's interesting from your list from I don't know whether you did this but of course the, the standard place is the Lake District I mean that's the that's the place that is kind of mm. so synonymous with you know the romantic <laughs> yes. poets and the landscape but you you've yes. sort of chosen other other literary influences to do the tools with <laughs> yes <laughs> yes, I don't know quite how. They've always just been things which have struck me as um, this would be a fun thing to do. Yeah, the um, you mentioned the Mallory quest for the Holy Grail. That yes, dare I ask, where did you? <laughs> where did we find it? <laughs> Very controversial. Where did you go? Yes, I can it is controversial. We're going to upset a group of people, no matter where you say you went at this point. Yes. But, uh, yeah. Well, we. Um, I guess I was. You know, it was, there were sort of practicalities to take into account of sort of where we could travel. We had, I can't remember how, I think we only had one full day for that one. So it was quite a sort of um, whistle-stop tour. But we started in the, we managed to get permission to get into the middle of Stonehenge before it opened oh, wow. to the public. So we yeah. were standing among the stones for the, for uh, everyone was sort of more or less assigned a character, which then sort of narrated their bit of a story so Merlin appeared from behind one of the stones in the middle of Stonehenge and told the story of the sword of the stone which was very memorable um and then from uh Stonehenge we traveled to Cadbury Castle and uh just I forget if it's Dorset or Somerset but it's um it's just uh not far from Yeovil and that's uh, this um, Iron Age uh, hill fort, which is thought by some to be Camelot. And then from there, we walked to, to Glastonbury and climbed the tour, which some say is Avalon. And then there was perhaps the most memorable uh, moment of the day was sitting around the, the plot within Glastonbury Abbey that's marked as Arthur's grave. And actually the 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 friend who I'd asked to narrate the the actual death of, well, or rather the sort of disappearance of Arthur, he, he'd written a song and brought his ukulele along. And we sat around this grave and he narrated it as a song that he'd written, which was incredible. So, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a beautiful day. And again, that's a real memory for me. It was one of those sort of golden late summer days where, um, you know, sitting among the ruins of the spectacular Glastonbury Abbey with the sun setting, that was, that was very memorable. It seems such a wonderful idea. I'm surprised not not more people are doing literary jobs because as soon as I read that, I thought, well, that's an amazing idea. So, yeah, which was the one that you enjoyed most? Can I mean, can you pick one? Yeah, it, well, I, so I did. I, yeah, it's hard to pick them because they were all quite different in a way. I, I think probably the, so. The first one was the first walk to Canterbury, and that was such that was a real revelation. Really, I just it was so much fun. And there were lots of close friends who came along on that one. So that was probably the one I had the most fun doing. And, and what was, it was quite revelatory, really, because, you know, we began, we set off and it was, it was a holiday, really. I mean, it was, it was just fun and we were all, we're all loving doing it. And, and of course, for stories of us, which come generally, the Canterbury Tales is unfinished and it's fragmentary and we don't know quite what order things fall in. But, but there are some tales which you do know where they go. And, and the first batch of tales are all the most bawdy and hilarious and uproarious and that suited the mood we were in setting out of London and sort of you know full of high energy and so on but then what was really interesting is you know despite the fact that the Canterbury Tales is fragmentary and we you know there's debate about how it all fits together and did Chaucer finish it and you know to what extent it's finished 
the tone of the tales really seemed to match the sort of experience of our walk. So for instance, there's a moment, I think we, we did it over four days, and there was a moment in the second day where the parson steps forward to tell a tale and the shipman says, no, no, we don't want any of your preaching. I'll tell a tale. And then he tells this bawdy tale. It's as if it isn't time yet for the parson to tell his tale. And as we um, as we approached Canterbury, I don't know whether it was, uh, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't as particularly a religious or a spiritual pilgrimage. But the fact was, we had walked from London. We we put in every step of the way, and as we approached the city, there it did feel uh, rather momentous. It felt sort of yeah, very very, um, you know, it felt like this. It felt like a bigger thing than we'd been expecting. And it was at that moment that the parson gets to tell his rather serious final tale. But it was almost as if Chaucer, who must, of course, have, have travelled to, maybe not on pilgrimage, but he travelled to Canterbury many times because he was a very well-travelled man. It was almost as if he knew that sort of um, that sort of psychological arc that you get from a journey, and, and he was matching his tales to it. So it was things like that which I just would never have noticed, um, I suspect, if I hadn't experienced it along with the text. That's, that's fascinating. And it's part of what you were saying about, so you need the time to do a walk, you need the time to read a book and actually doing the walking, we, perhaps especially these days when we're on screens half the time and we read very quickly, we tend to skim things. It's that that, that space to slow down and appreciate the text. Yeah, I, I think it's really important. And um, and I think, you you know, when you read a really long book, you get to the end and it yes, does feel like you've been on a on an extraordinary journey, doesn't it? <laughs> Especially because uh, unless you're unless you're kind of uh, well an extraordinary person, you'll you'll have read it over several sittings, and and in in my case, quite a slow reader over over many sittings, and so you do feel you know that you've aged with this book. You've you know you've sort of lived through it as well. And my wife and I read War and Peace the other year, and we read it over the course of the whole year. Um, we split it up into twelve chunks and read a chunk each month, <laughs> and it, it we we had to sort of time it so that we finished at the same time so that we could sort of celebrate together because it felt like such a sort of epic trip that we'd been on together. Yeah, yeah. I listening to you saying that, I think it, maybe there's something there. I mean, every as soon as the clocks go back. And this will link on to what I want to talk about next, which is um, penguin books and penguin classics and why we're drawn to them. But this time of year for me is all about digging out the classics, particularly Dickens. So for me, you know, leading up to Christmas is a big fat Dickens volume that you have to read, you know, in the dark evenings over a longer period of time. Why? Why is that? What What is it? Do you think that appeals to us so much about a the classics at this time of year, and and then yes, Penguin in particular have a sort of genius around the branding of it's that accessibility thing as again of making you think oh yeah maybe I can tackle you know War and Peace or um, David Copperfield. <laughs> how does that? How do those things come together? Yeah, well, it's I totally agree with what you're saying. I've, I've you know, when the evenings draw in, I think, you know, there's nothing better than hunkering down with a book. I mean, I think part of that is is possibly the way that books just do transport you, don't they? I mean, they're, they're you know, they're like little handheld portals to other worlds and other uh, points of view. And so, um, you know, when it's cold and miserable outside, it's rather nice to be whisked off to uh, uh, perhaps a more exotic location. But I think um, there is also, of course, comfort there for those of us who love reading it's it's a it's a sort of parallel 
life that we live in, right? But it's sort of, you know, you can experience a book as vividly as you can real life sometimes. And so to have that, you know, I think we're drawn to that, especially when it's uh, when it's cold and and dark. And, and there's probably a bit of a primeval thing going on there of sort of, you know, gathering together in the dark and telling stories around the fire and sort of, you know, storytelling works best in the dark, I think. That reminds me of this amazing time. I went to hear Susan Hill reading from uh, her latest ghost story. I think it was called, I think it was The Small Hand. And it was an event at Somerset House um, in London. And to make it atmospheric, they they turned down the lights and just had a single candle with Susan Hill reading um, by the light of it. It was very, very brilliant. Except that whoever was scheduling the um, events at Somerset House had, must have forgotten that that night was also the opening of the massive ice rink outside this <laughs> room with a huge big band playing the bare necessities. <laughs> so poor Susan Hill was um, really trying to make this atmospheric and dark and spooky. And um, it was slightly spoiled by the music. But yeah, no, I think that's... Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think we're all drawn to books um, when it gets dark. But um, yeah, and in terms of Penguin, I think, well, I think, I think Penguin is, it's partly, uh, you know, I think we're lucky that over the years, Penguin has has, has built this kind of um, approachable reputation where, you know, that that little sort of cheery Penguin is, is, is a sign that this is a book, you know, that I can trust and that I, I want to read. And yeah, certainly for me before, you know, before I worked there, I used to turn to Penguin Classics and Penguin Modern Classics all the time because I just, you know, with I do sometimes read contemporary novels, but often you sort of you don't quite know what you're getting. Whereas you feel like with a with a classic, you're kind of as a as a bit of a guarantee there that you're reading something fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I, I do agree, and I also think that the the branding thing, so the the different ways that penguin classics have rejacketed things in different lists um i am a total sucker for mm. having you know several versions mm. of the same text but just because i love the <laughs> covers so much but the book that i wanted to there were the two books i really want to talk about that you've you've written henry the the first is the wonderful penguin classics book that came out a couple of years ago now which is um an amazing um compendium really to two penguin classics <laughs> And in the um, preface to that, you talk about it's aimed to be a reader's companion to the best books ever written. So, you know, reflecting on the fact that we've just been talking about, you know, how many there are and different times of year, and et cetera. Um, you, you do also mention the Sisyphean task of building a classics list. Um, how did you how do you identify your own best books and how did you organize this one uh, so well? I mean, that must have, what's the thought process behind that? <laughs> I think there's two answers to your question. And the first is that, yes, I think I think a, a classics publisher, it is a Sisyphean task in that it's a constant work in progress. I think there's, I think no classics publisher would claim to be, claim to have published the 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 canon that was a fixed list and that, you know, here we are, this is the, the final list. I think it's always a work in progress. It's a task of, you know, ad- identifying gaps in the list, identifying imbalances and, and always looking for um, new titles to join the list. I remember when I first started working for Penguin Classics, it, friends were a bit sort of confused by the idea of new classics. But of course, and, and I have to admit, but, but you know, before I worked at Penguin, if a if an old title wasn't a Penguin classic, then I was a bit suspicious of it. I thought, <laughs> Why? Know, what was wrong with it? This <laughs> really, um, yeah, yes, what's wrong with it? But now I, I can sort of see now that it's, you know, even though Penguin Classics has been going for 75 years, Penguin Modern Classics for 60 years, there's still just so 
such a long way to go and so many titles still to find and to, and to put in there. So I th- that's what I mean by a Sisyphean task. I think it's, um, you know, it's constantly putting new titles in. And actually, I'm really excited about some of the titles which are just uh, joining the list at the moment. There's there's a wonderful title just been published called um, Crossing the Mangrove by Marisa Conde, the Guadalupian writer, this murder mystery. And of course, Marisa Conde is always a hot favourite for the Nobel Prize. She won the alternative Nobel Prize in 2018. Um, and so that's a, you know, that's a wonderful classic to add to the list. And Second Class Citizen has just joined the list and The Salt Eaters. So um, yeah, it's a, it is a constant work in progress. And in terms of these two books, yeah, in, in a way, working out how to um, organise them was one of the hardest tasks. Um, the, I mean, I suppose what they set out to do is... is um, present a kind of atlas of world literature for people, for readers to explore. I mean, I hope, I, I think it would be a slightly unusual reader who who read it through from cover to cover. I hope people will use it like an atlas and sort of explore the different areas um, of the history and the and the world of literature. And so the first book, the, the Penguin Classics book, is divided into four chronological sort of epochs, I suppose, as there's the ancient world, the Middle Ages, um, early modern Europe, and then the Industrial Age, which is the 19th century, roughly. And an interesting observation is that each of those chronological ages roughly doubles in size within the book, which I suppose is partly a comment on you know how few texts survive over the years. You know, when from these very old texts, so much has been lost. But I think it's also a demonstration of just how um, the amount of books being written and published is just increasing exponentially. And certainly at the start of the 19th century, with the rise of industrial printing presses, suddenly the number of books circulating exploded. And so, yes, the first book is in these four sections, roughly doubling in size, but the Industrial Revolution is pretty much half of that first book. And then I see this second book, the Penguin Modern Classics book, almost like the fifth and final epoch of this project. It's, it's like it's doubled again, and this fifth age, kind of the modern age, fills an entire volume now. <laughs> so, that, so that's how I see this sort of all working together. And then within, the, within each of these chronological sections, I've organised it ge- roughly geographically. So for instance, in the modern classics book, which is out in mid-November, it's, it's organised around the world. So you, if you read it straight through, you travel from Ireland to Uruguay and Argentina. You'd sort of travel all the way around the world. But also within that, I mean, what I'm also really trying to do in these books is draw myriad connections between titles and authors, you know, titles which were inspired by other titles, like, I guess, a title like Tayab Salih's Season of Migration to the North, which is a direct response to Conrad's Heart of Darkness, but both have appeared in Penguin Modern Classics over the years. So it's fun to put them in the same book and draw that connection. Or, or you can draw a longer strand through, say, feminist writing from Wolf's uh, A Room of One's Own to Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex to Betty Friedan, The Feminine Mystique to Women, Race and Class by Angela Y. Davis. You know, Drawing these connections is one of the things that's been a real pleasure for me. And, and I hope that will you know, help readers to dis- make new discoveries. Yeah. I mean, definitely for me, that was the highlight. The Penguin Classics one, the joy of that was it isn't just a compendium. It has got this, you know, it does point you. So you you kind of skip from, from one, you think, okay, yes, I know about Heart of Darkness, but I haven't heard of that one. I'll try that. But just in terms of the organisation and to have all those threads in your head, 
it, it's an incredible accomplishment, Henry. Honestly, I don't know how you did it. Well, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, looking at it now, I'm not quite sure how I did it either. But it, it really, I, the answer is it's it's taken a number of years. I mean, it's um, I've been working on this two volume project now since uh, late 2016. So yeah, it's been pretty much five years of working on this, and I suppose it was. In a way, it wasn't that tricky because with each, there's a little piece about each author and each title in there. And when I was, you know, reading around each each piece that I was writing, if ever I saw a little connection to someone who I knew was somewhere else on the list, I'd make sure to, you know, I'd privilege that over other um, uh, connections. So I'd sort of, I'd always be looking for those those networks and um, connections. And I've I've tried to take it a step further actually in um, in the Penguin Modern Classics book. In the Penguin Classics book, the narrative thread that I, I roughly trace through it is a is a historical one. You know, before each section, I have a little paragraph which sort of sets the context for you know what was happening in the Middle Ages in you know the Middle East or what was happening in nineteenth um, century Italy, for instance. In the Modern Classics book, that didn't feel quite so appropriate because it's a relatively short time period. So actually, having a sort of a sort of historical piece before each section would have there'd have been so much overlap it, it it made less sense and so what I've done is instead the narrative thread in this book is taking all the different movements and groupings and trends of the 20th century you know movements like Dadaism or surrealism or postmodernism or groups like the Beat Generation the Bloomsbury Group and I've got pieces about those dotted throughout the book. So I'm trying to trace a narrative of all these different collectives and manifestos, which have been, which have really been a very sort of distinctive aspect to 20th century literature, I think. And the other thing I've done in here, which I think works particularly well with the modern classics book, because it's predominantly fiction, whereas Penguin Classics is much more of a blend of nonfiction, poetry, um, drama, and so on. I've got lots of little recommended reading lists on, on on various themes and always I've tried to go for quite unusual themes so I've got a little reading list of novels about dysfunctional families for instance or novels which are all set over one day or novels which involve deals with the devil or uh, novels with monstrous children in them that's one of my favorites or actually my favorite one is um, I've got a list of unclassifiable books which was everything left over after I'd finished all the other lists <laughs> 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 Which wouldn't, yeah, so things like um, The Book of Disquiet by Fernando Pessoa and Agua Viva by Clarice Lispector, which has no plot and no character, um, but is still a masterpiece. <laughs> um, so, yes, I've, again, yes, I've tried to really sort of foreground those connections. And, and you know, I just want, it's been such a pleasure for me to discover so much about these these titles and these authors. And, I, and re, that's what I really want is, is for people to open this book and for it to look like a kind of, you know, like a box of chocolates, really, that they just want to gorge on and, and discover new new books. I, I think going back to where we started with talking about literary tours and the landscape, but to have a book like this is literally to dive in and to go, you know, you're, you're, you're mapping out the whole scope that is, you know, could take you a lifetime to work your way through properly if you wanted to, so... <laughs> Yes, perhaps probably more, yes, than a probably more than a lifetime. I mean, and that's so. I'm so great. That's a really helpful thing to point out. I think you know, calling it a literary landscape because that's something I've really come to believe over the years of working on these books and working, you know, with Penguin Classics. Is I think for some people, the term classics is still associated in their minds with the idea of a canon, a kind of 
received a kind of almost a sort of imposed canon from from school, from from scholars, from critics. And I really think we need to move beyond that idea because it, I think it's quite a outdated one, really. I, I, I just don't think it's realistic anymore that there could be a single universally accepted canon of what is essential reading. You know, I think, um, you know, the world is such a rich and multifaceted place. There is never going to be a single list that works for everyone. And so I think we need to move from canon building to a form of cartography. I think, you know, I think um, classics, publishers and and literary academics should be acting not as sort of um, top-down uh, canon builders, but as guides and, and sort of map makers showing it, really sort of just showing us this incredible literary landscape and encouraging us, you know, that, you know, saying, oh, you might enjoy walking over there. That's an incredibly beautiful spot. Or, or, you know, this is a bit of a challenge, but if you climb this mountain, wow, the view is amazing and you'll see all this other stuff. So I'm, I'm on a sort of uh, campaign to sort of shift the way we think about classics away from the canon and towards a sort of um, just a wonderful landscape to explore. Yeah, I am totally with you there. I think, you know, it, we talk about decolonizing the curriculum a lot um, on sort of English courses, but but this, I mean, in, in a way, Penguin are very, I've already been doing that for a number of decades in terms of taking away some of that intellectual, you know, that no, certain people read classics ordinary people don't read classics that's something that scholars do and I think the thing about you said the friendly little penguin is that you know you feel that why, well yeah why can't I pick up um, War and Peace or try something from you know like you say Uruguay or Japan I've noticed some of the the new ones that you know Japanese classics coming through so Henry conscious of the time and that we need to wind this up a bit but I need to ask you of all of the books that you've you've come across and read for both of these two books what what would you identify as your own best books and and do any of them connect with certain moods that you might be in or sort of go to ones when you're feeling particularly fed up or you want a bit of you know um relief from the modern world or you know what are some of your favorites recommend some for us <laughs> well gosh this is the uh yeah, of course of course i mean my sort of i feel like my personal favorites are always the ones which have sort of stuck with me for longest and but there, but there are certain books that I sort of carry around almost like talismans that I sort of need near me even if I'm not um, reading them and a lot of those are ones from you know that were important to me when I was younger like Alice in Wonderland like uh, Gulliver's Travels by Swift another book I need near me is the little Faber edition of T.S. Eliot's selected poems. A slightly unusual one is a, is a Penguin classic, not a very well-known Penguin classic, but I highly recommend it. This book called The Travels of Sir John Mandeville. Oh, yes, you I love that one. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I built, I found this. I, I'd never heard of it before, but um, as a teenager, or maybe I was at university already, I came across it in the bookshop in Aldborough in Sussex, which is in Suffolk, sorry, which is a beautiful um, bookshop. And I was mainly struck by the cover, actually. I just, it was such a weird picture of these sort of strange people with faces in their chests strolling around this odd landscape. Mm. Anyway, it is a totally <laughs> fascinating book, which appeared in the mid-14th century about a knight from St. Albans, an English knight who goes travelling to Jerusalem and then carries on into the um, east and gets close to the earthly paradise and meets people with dogs' heads and ants collecting gold and the most bizarre adventures. And it was incredibly popular popular at the time. You know, Christopher Columbus had it on his ship when he was traveling and then has subsequently been demonstrated to be a complete hoax. Nearly everything is plagiarized from somewhere else. But nonetheless, it's just the most sort of thrilling and 
fascinating read and and yeah that's one of the books I, I have to have near me I mean that is complete escapism that is, is sort of bonkers yes, in the best yes. kind of way you could not you couldn't imagine the things that completely but then also very wise and humane and you know he he beats some um, travels in you know through um the sort of belt of medieval Islam and is very very tolerant towards Muslims in a way that you know having just you know had the crusades you know a lot of europeans weren't so it, it's no it's a it's a wonderful book but yeah in terms of discoveries i've made i'm going to recommend two books in fact neither of them are published by penguin anymore but i've uh, that's partly why i hadn't heard of them so they used to be published by modern class in modern classics but actually quite a lot of titles have once been published in modern classics and and are no longer and that's simply because of um 20th century copyright law and and when licenses expire you know Publishers vie for the rights to pu- publish titles which are still in copyright. So, actually, that's it's something worth saying that this modern classics book includes everything that's ever been a Penguin modern classic, including lots which no longer is, including great authors like Hemingway, Graham Greene, um, Ivy Compton Burnett, Colette, J.D. Salinger. But because they have been, I, I thought it was worth putting them all in there because it gives a much more comprehensive the sort record. Of overview yeah. of 20th yeah. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, I don't want this to be a sort of marketing catalogue. I want it to be a, a useful companion to 20th century literature. So I think this gives it a much more rounded scope. But that's meant that I've come across some extraordinary little things which I hadn't known about before, which had once been on the list. And the, the first I recommend is a book by Dino Buzzati called The Tartar Step, which is quite easily, accept- you know, I think Canongate published it now. It's a, a mid-century Italian novel about a, a young soldier who gets posted to a, a remote fortress overlooking this vast desert, waiting for the, it's the desert of the Tartars, and they're waiting for this great attack from this um, sort of Tartar horde. And he he slightly neglects his family and he neglects his friendships, but he thinks it's okay because I'll prove myself here at the castle. I'll be the hero that I always thought I'd be. And the years pass and, and the Tartars never attack and the years pass more and he gets a bit older. And, and in the end, he passes his almost his entire life waiting for this great act of heroism he's going to perform. And um, well, do they attack in the end? I won't reveal the ending. You'll have to read the book. But um, it's uh, it's a great, it's been compared to Kafka and Beckett and it's a great um, sort of a great novel of waiting. And then the other one, I, I just think it's brilliant. I, I really want more people to know about it, is a book called Locos or Locos. I'm not quite sure how you're meant to pronounce it by um, Felipe Alfau, who was a Spanish writer, um, but he, he actually lived most of his life in America and the book is written in English. And it's just brilliant. The first chapter is set in a cafe in Toledo called the Cafe des Locos, the cafe of the mad people. And the or, there's an author sitting in the cafe looking at all these characters thinking, oh, they'd make good characters in a book. And then the next chapter begins and he's writing about one of the characters that he spotted in the cafe and he's telling us about him. And then the doorbell rings and the author says, oh, the doorbell's rang. I have to go and answer that. And as soon as he's gone, the character starts talking to us and saying, oh, thank goodness that author's gone. Now I can tell you my real story because he's taken me in completely the wrong direction. And then the character tells his story for the rest of that chapter until the author comes back and realizes what's happening and cuts it off quickly. And it's like a sort of high wire balancing act, but each chapter builds on the previous one and it just gets more and more metafictional and, and convoluted and it's it's brilliant. So yeah, I highly recommend Locos. I think I think it's I think it's in print in America, perhaps with the Dulkey Archive, and, and you can it's possible to buy over here. So yeah, there's some there's two top recommendations. Right. And presumably both of those do feature in they the They both feature in, in the Penguin Modern Classics book. Classics. Yep, they do. Yeah. Right. 
Well, Henry, thank you so much for your time this morning. That was fascinating. I wish we had 10 hours to talk about <laughs> all the things that I would like to talk to you and ask you about and how you, you know, mapped it all out literally to put them all in the books. But thank you for talking a bit about um, your connection to the books, not not just the Penguin books, but, but also through the literary tours. And just a reminder to everybody that the Penguin Modern Classics book is out on the 18th of November. I think that's right. Um, Thirty pounds, if I'm correct in that as well. Um, and yes, it yes, it's a bit pricey, but oh, you get your money's worth. There's lots of pages in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I am not employed by Penguin in any shape or form, but I can say if it's anything like the Penguin Classics book was um, for for literally really anybody that loves books that you like. I'm just dropping hints again out there to my family members. And um, this is the perfect Christmas or even non-Christmas. Why wait till Christmas? buy it for people that love books now. Henry, thank you so much. I, I hope that was um, enjoyable for you as well. Thank you, Sam. It was great. I've really, I've really loved talking to you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for coming on Shelf Healing. I hope you enjoyed listening to Henry and Sam as much as I did. And Henry's new book is out now in all good bookshops. We popped a, a link to it in the show notes. Hint to all of those struggling to find presents for those book lovers. There are now two Penguin Classics and Penguin Modern Classics books that Henry has written, which are fabulous and highly recommended. As always, thanks to Nicholas Patrick for our music. Nat Balch has done our transcript this week. And don't forget to check us out on Twitter at shelf underscore healing. Hold up. 